please take out your worksheet. Worksheet number 20. Can you believe it? Number 20. We're headed to number 25. That means we're quite a ways in. In fact, this week we're coming in for a landing, and by next weekend we're wrapping this up. The time seems to have flown, at least it has for me. I hope it has for you. But tonight we're on number 20, the final warning. The final warning. We've been studying and looking at prophecy all the way from the time of Babylon to Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Rome operates in how many phases? Oh, we have to start over again. (laughs) Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Now in Daniel 2, he sees it in two phases, the iron legs and then divided into the miry clay mixed with iron, you know. But then in Daniel chapter 7, he gets four phases, right? You have the empire of Rome, then you have divided into ten horns Rome, then you have the little horn power of Rome who works for 1,260 years, And then he takes a break and sees this judgment in heaven. And one last time, this little horn power raises up, speaking pompous words once again. Now, this morning, we looked at the book of Revelation's testimony about that little horn's power's final days, the last stand that he's going to make against the king of heaven, the Antichrist versus Jesus Christ. And what we noticed is the Bible outlines that the Antichrist has an accomplice, someone who works for him, works in his behalf, to lead people to worship the Antichrist instead of leading people to worship Jesus Christ. So the big issue at the end will be worship, and today we looked at the mark of the beast, and we saw that the one is going to have true worship of God according to the dictates of his commandments, and then the other sets up a false commandment, a false worship, and the world be divided into simply those who follow Jesus Christ and keep his commandments, and those who follow the Antichrist and his commandments. Are we up to date so far? Okay, good enough. Now, tonight's message is called The Final Warning in this time of universal distress and confusion. Apparently, God will have a final people with a final message, the final warning, to make clear the issues at stake, to make clear what's going on in the earth and God's remedy so you don't have to be lost in confusion and darkness, but you can be saved in the end. God will have a final message, and that's what we are tonight. Worksheet number 20, the last warning, the final warning. But before we begin our study tonight, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the promise of your word, for the accuracy of Bible prophecy, and Lord, we know that we're living in exciting times. Lord, help us now to refocus and redouble our our energies and our our zeal so that we will not get just drifting away into whatever the world offers. But Lord, help us to stay grounded in your truth, grounded in your word, and keep our hand by faith in the hand of Jesus Christ, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, page 1182. 1182, Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to see. We're going to read the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 12, which is not really saying that much. There's only 17 verses of it. But I want to walk you through this chapter because this chapter outlines the entire history of God's people from the beginning of time until the very end of time. Now, of course, Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy book. It's about big end-time events, and it's written in colorful, symbolic language. Okay? 
We're going to see that, but we're going to be able to decode the symbolism tonight and show you very clearly from the Bible, allowing the Bible to be its own interpreter, what these symbols, what these figures represent, and where we fall in that stream of history. So let's begin Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A, what did he see? Woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, in Bible prophecy, we've noted it previously, and we'll say it again, a woman always represents the what? The church. God's people on this earth are always represented. In fact, it's not just in the New Testament book of Revelation. You go back to the Old Testament, and he's always talking about Israel being his people, his bride, if you will, and anytime she's unfaithful, he talks about her in very um, <clears throat> unflattering terms, Right? going and playing the harlot, doing, committing adultery, fornication with these other gods, these other places, these other things, being unfaithful to the covenant relationship, right? But whenever they, she's being faithful, he talks about this pure woman, a bride to Christ, this kind of thing. And this is what you see employed here in Revelation chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and notice her clothing. And I say notice it because it's going to be important right now, and also because it will be in contrast to Satan's counterfeit woman that we'll see in just a little bit, okay? Revelation chapter 12, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with what? The sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Moon under her feet, clothed with the sun, and a garland of 12 stars. You see these three natural lights, the sun, which, of course, is the greater light, than the moon, which is reflective, and she has wearing a garland of 12 stars. And a garland is a crown, right? A crown of 12 stars. So what possibly does this represent? Well, I believe that we're looking at here the church before Jesus comes into existence. This is the church before the incarnation of the Son of God. This is the Old Testament people of God. And why do I say that? Well, a couple reasons. Let's read verse 2, and then we'll start to explain it. Again, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Verse 2, then being, in what condition? With child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, if this truly does represent the church, which I believe that it does, has she had the child yet? No. So this is before the child is born, looking forward to that time for the child to be born. Of course, as we read on, we find out that the child is none other than whom? Jesus Christ, right? So this is the church before Jesus is born, and there's another indicator that it's not just the church moments before Christ comes on the scene, but this goes way back into the children of Israel's history. Let's go to Genesis chapter 37. By the way, this is not in your notes, but I want to add it to you tonight. I'm not going to charge you extra for this. This one's free, as opposed to all that other stuff that's free as well, all right? Genesis chapter 37. Write that one in your notes there. Right next to Old Testament church before Jesus. Go to page 36 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 37. Now, this is the story of Jacob, of course, whose name was later changed to Israel, right? And thus his sons are the sons of Israel, and the the family that comes from him is the children of Israel, right? This is Old Testament church of God, children of Israel. Now, before they became a great nation, even before they had, long before they had come into Egypt, much less come out of Egypt, right? This is way back in their history. We find this reference. 
Of course, it says here, let's read to verse 2. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock and his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So that's not going to go well. He's with his older brothers, and he tells on them. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. That's probably not good for his health either. Okay? Because he was the son of his old age. So these other brothers are older already, and this is the new kid on the block. The young kid apparently gets the favorite played, and now he's giving a bad report. You can almost hear the tense music starting to build if this were to be acted out, right? Now, also he made him a tunic of many colors. So he literally showed off his appreciation and respect for this youngest son over the other sons, and it doesn't go well at all. Verse 5. I'm sorry, verse uh, verse. 5. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. That's poor sad for Joseph, right? All the other brothers, hey, how you doing, buddy? Good to see you. And Joseph comes along, and everything changes. They can't even say a nice word to him. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. He's like, wait, wait, don't hate me. Let me tell you what I dreamed. You all were bowing down to me. We're friends, right? This is good. Doesn't go over well. Goes on. Verse 8, and his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Now, those of us who know the story of Joseph, did Joseph ever indeed reign over them? Absolutely, the Lord brought this to resolution, right? But from this early point, this seems ludicrous, right? But he has another dream. In verse 7, so they hated him even more. I'm sorry, verse 8, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And now watch the language closely. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now he said, now wait, 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 wait. We got the sun, the moon, but there's the wrong number of stars. Well, who's that 12th star? He is, right? He's one of the children of Israel as well. The sun, the moon, and the stars are a representation of the children of Israel, the family of Jacob, right? The household of faith. And just in case that's unclear, he tells it to his father, and his father interprets it for us. Verse 10, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, now notice this, he told him it was the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars. And Joseph has it interpreted by his father Jacob. What is this, that you, that do you, uh, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down come to bow down to the earth before you. Who does he interpret the sun, the moon, and the stars to be? Himself, his wife, and the brothers, the children, the family of Jacob, the house of Israel. And here in Revelation chapter chapter 12, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12, you see this great sign appeared, a woman or a church clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. By the way, this 12 being, let's go, I'll give you one more bonus text tonight. Acts chapter 1. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. 
We're going to start with verse 15. That's page 1051 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. It's that little slice of time, those few days after Jesus ascends into heaven and before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They're in the upper room and they have a little bit of church business to tend to. And notice what they're doing here. Start with verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. And in those days, surprise, surprise, who stands up? Peter, always the spokesman for the group. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Now, altogether, the number of names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth, before by the mouth of David, concerning whom? Judas. So he's talking about what person? Judas. And of course, at this point, Judas is dead. He has taken his own life, guilt and awful feelings of, uh, it was a really tragic end, and he goes on to describe it graphically, and we don't have to go into that, but Judas has lost his place amongst the disciples, now the sent out apostles, right? Notice what it says here, for he was numbered with us and attained a part of this ministry. Now let's go down to verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live it, live in it, and let another take his what? Office. So no one's going to live in his home. He's gone forever, but his office needs to be filled. Now at this point, there's 11 disciples. But they say that's insufficient. There needs to be a 12th. Why? Because the Bible says so. Sure, his home will be desolate, but his office needs to be filled by someone. And they say, well, and they go on. Therefore, verse 21, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Not as this. They say one of these must become one of us. And they had a pool of about 120, apparently, who had been there. And they said there's some certain qualifications. One of which is they had to be all the way back from the baptism of John all the way till Jesus was taken up. Now, I always had in my mind that only 12 people witnessed everything Jesus did. Apparently, there was a flock of people that witnessed everything Jesus did. And he said, now, one of our starters, if you want to use the imagery, the metaphor, has been injured. And now we need to get someone from the bench. Right? So they say, now we've got a pool of qualified candidates. So why don't they just nominate everybody? We need more apostles, right? We've got a big job to do. We're going to tell the whole world about Jesus. But that's not what they do. Verse 23, and they proposed how many? Two. So they whittled the list down and got down to two. So why don't they say, oh, great, we've got two qualified candidates. Let's have 13. But no. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. So he is a singular word, singular pronoun, was numbered with the eleven. So you have one being added to the eleven brings you how many? Twelve, of course. Why was it so important for the apostles to say, no, we can't have eleven, and we can't overshoot and have thirteen. We need exactly well, even though we've got two qualified candidates, we need the Lord himself to whittle it down. Which one do you choose? Because there can only be one. They understood that the New Testament church was simply an extension of the 
Old Testament church. There were the 12 children, the 12 tribes of Israel, and now there's going to be the 12 apostles, right? So we go back to Revelation chapter 12, appropriately enough. And it makes sense here that we see this woman, this church, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. This is clearly a reference to the church, specifically the church before Jesus arrives incarnate, the Son of God. Verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So that's the context. Now we move on to verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Now, a dragon always represents what character? Satan. And specifically, now he's going to use this... You never notice something? Satan really rarely ever comes down and does hand-to-hand combat. He has someone work on his behalf. Right? At the time Jesus was born, he tries to kill Jesus. But he doesn't come down himself. He has an empire do it. Specifically, the empire of Rome. Watch this now. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour whom? Her child. Notice he's not particularly after the woman. He's, his ultimate aim is to get whom? The child. This is why he's been fighting this whole time. His big enemy is the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush his head. As it was mentioned all the way back in Genesis 3.15, he's been trying to kill the seed. And so now the woman's about to give birth, Jesus is about to come, and he's poisoned. The moment Jesus is born, there's already a death decree on his head. Right? The angel has to come and tell Joseph, take the son, take your son out. Take your wife, your kid, out of here and go down to the land of Egypt. And of course, this is what we see here. Exactly what happens. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So Satan tries to get him, and he escapes. Now there's a whole lot that's said in one verse. That just covered the entire life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But notice here that the focus is not on Satan's war with the child so much as it is his war with the woman. And the woman represents the church. This is Satan's battle with the church. Starts in the Old Testament, before the baby's even born. Wants to get the baby, of course. And what you would think, well, he messed up. He didn't get the child, so I guess he's going to quit. Watch now verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days days, which of course a day in prophetic time equals a year in literal time. So this is now moving from the empire of Rome who tried to snatch the baby and kill it the moment it was born. And now we've moved into the papal Rome during its 1,260 years of persecution. And the church, the woman is being persecuted, but she flees to the wilderness to be taken care of, not from the sea, but to the earth to this other uninhabited land relatively uninhabited land and now you can ask the question well why is this guy so mad what's the deal and that's what revelation chapter 7 uh, chapter 12 verses 7 through 12 gives you the background story 
It gives you the background story of why the dragon is so mad to start with, because there had been a war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And of course, they lost, and they lost their place, and he was cast to the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. But now we go on to verse 13, staying with the storyline of the war against the church. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted whom? The woman who gave birth to the male child. So now he's going after the woman after Jesus is born. Now he's coming after the New Testament church, right? But, and this is a repetition of what we've already seen, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a, surprise, surprise, time, times, and half a time. Same 1,260-year period. Goes on. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood with the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And then verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with whom? The rest of her offspring. The implication is some of her offspring he's gotten, right? But the woman still, the church is still faithful through this remnant of her seed, this rest of her offspring. And they're known for these two characteristics. Who keep the what? Commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice what we talked about this morning. You're either going to serve God and keep his commandments, or you're going to serve Satan and keep his commandments. One or the other. And apparently, although he's been battling the church from the beginning all the way down through, by the time he gets to the time of the end, there is this one group of people he just cannot shake. And it infuriates him. He's enraged with the woman. By the way, people like to comment to say, see, the true church of Bible prophecy, the remnant church, the faithful church is known for two things. And I've been guilty of saying it myself. They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. But you notice there's also a third criteria there too. The dragon is enraged and attacking this church. Right? So you're looking for someone who keeps the commandments of God and what's going to be, that's going to raise the ire of Satan, the enemy, right? He's enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation chapter 13, we've already covered, but we'll just briefly cover it here to give it, because we're leading up to Revelation chapter 14. But I want to give you the context of 12 and 13 before we get there. Now, we've studied chapter 13 before, but I just want to briefly review it before we get into Revelation chapter 14. Of course, he sees two beasts, Revelation chapter 13, two beasts. One comes up out of the sea, and it's got all the different parts that Daniel had seen already, and this is that little horn papal power. And then we see the Antichrist's accomplice, the beast that comes out of the earth. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 and onward. Basically, what we see in Revelation 13 is a retelling of the story of the Roman church during the 1260 years, but with added detail. At the end of the 1260 years, the papal power loses its influence by receiving a deadly wound, right? Can we see that in Revelation chapter 13? 
It says here, uh, verse 3, And I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was what? Healed. So apparently there's a time when he gets wounded. By the way, Daniel had seen all that. But then there's a time when it's going to be revived, and it's going to be healed. And that's going to be quite astonishing, quite marvelous to the people of the world. And it says here, And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worship the dragon. And of course, notice this. They worship the dragon, which is Satan, who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Basically, the question is, Who on earth can stand against this power? Again in our notes, But afterward the deadly wound is healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. This introduces the power that would aid in the papacy's resurgence, as we saw that beast from the earth or the United States of America. Chapter 13, again, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, every other beast that we've seen come up out of, in prophecy, in both Daniel and Revelation, comes from where? The sea, which represents multitudes and nations and tongues and peoples. This power arises from the earth, that wilderness, the earth to where the woman fled during that time of persecution. Out of this now rises a great nation. Another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a what? Lamb. And of course, a lamb is always a representation of whom? Jesus Christ. And spoke, however, like a dragon. Okay, So you have the two kingdoms operating side by side, Christ-like powers here, but it will speak like the dragon. And how does the dragon speak? First with deception and finally with persecution. Always the same method. Always the same methodology. So, though through Satan's means, which are deception and persecution, the United States will lead the whole world in worship to the beast by requiring universal Sunday observance. This is the counterfeit Sabbath to the true Sabbath of the Lord your God. And that's what we saw this morning, the seal of God is the fourth commandment that has his title, his name, and his territory all there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you worship and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. But there's a counterfeit to that that says, no, 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 no. Worship this way, a a day in which God has not honored, but the Antichrist power has established as the day of worship. So the issue at the bottom line is about worship. We're going to see that tonight. Bottom line of all the issues at the end time boils down to worship, which, by the way, is what it has been since the very beginning. Satan wants to be recognized as God, to be like God. He wants to be worshipped as God. But there's only one true God. You can only have one loyalty, period. Now, Revelation chapter 14. Now we get there. So in the context, after Revelation chapter 12 gives this whole history of the church, Revelation chapter 13 gives the the workings of the counterfeit. We have in Revelation chapter 14, God's people. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written where? On their foreheads, these people have received the seal of God. They are his people, very clearly. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. 
And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, obviously, these have been through a unique experience. Of course, this is fast-forwarding, looking at the triumphant redeemed as they stand with God on Mount Zion, right? But they're singing a new song because they've gone through an experience that no one else has been through. And it describes what, and you just notice all of the symbolic language. Jesus is not an actual lamb. Does that make sense? Jesus is actually the Son of God. He is divine being. He has human form. That's fine. But in symbolic language, it calls him the lamb because that was his role as the sacrificial lamb, right? And the same thing here, we see symbolic language. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, and in verse 4, describes who these peoples are. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. Okay? This means they are pure. They are faithful. For they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouths was found no what? Notice that Satan works always through deceit, deception, deception, deception. But here are a group of people that in their mouth is found no deceit. They don't tell lies. What do they tell? The truth. Apparently they have something coming out of their mouth, but it's not lies. It's not counterfeit. It's not falsehood. It is the truth. They have a message that they're bearing, and in their mouths is found no deceit. For they are without fault before the throne of God. What we see here are what we're going to call the three angels' messengers, God's end-time messengers. The remnant people have no deceit in their mouths. They proclaim God's truth in the last days. Now, let's go to what is their message. Now, there's a reason I call God's last day messengers the three angels' messengers because they give the message that these next passages tell us as coming from three angels okay now watch number one verse six then i saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the what's the next thing everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation tribe tongue and people the first thing we see here is that they preach the everlasting gospel to every nation tribe tongue and people Notice, please, 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 that this last day church is not presenting a new gospel. This is the everlasting gospel because there aren't multiple gospels. There is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are not multiple ways to heaven. There are not new ways you can get there or inventive gospels you can come up with. There is one truth, and it is through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by what? but by me. This last day church follows the Lamb Jesus Christ wherever he goes, and they're giving the message to the whole world of the eternal gospel. Apparently, even in the last days, God's church continues to preach the gospel. No doubt about it. The everlasting gospel to every tribe, every nation, tongue, and people. And notice it goes to where? The whole world. Had Jesus prophesied this happening prior to his coming? Absolutely. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself in verse 14 of uh, Matthew 24, page 960 in your pew Bibles, had prophesied of all the things to watch for, one of the very last things would be that the gospel would go to the whole world just before his coming. 
Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he says very succinctly, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in where? All the world as a witness to where? All the nations. And then the end will come. So apparently the gospel message will go to the world before Jesus comes, according to the word of the Lord and according to this passage in Revelation chapter 14. There's a people living in time who are going to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. But notice that this everlasting gospel, this timeless gospel, is being preached at a particular time in history. Does that make sense? It's a timeless message of the gospel, but in the context of when it's being preached, it is a specific point in time when it's being presented. Okay? You have a timeless message at a particular time in history. And what time is that? Let's continue Revelation chapter 14. Again, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. Now, why, why is the, what's their urgency right now? For the hour or the time of His what? Judgment. Does it say will come? Is on the horizon? Will someday begin? No, no, no. These people are preaching that the time of His judgment has come. Now, we know from our studies when that time is. It begins, the guy's final work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary begins in 1844. So this message is being preached. It's the same gospel message that's been throughout the time, throughout all of earth's history. But now is being given added importance, added significance, because the hour of his judgment has come. These are God's last day end time messengers saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Come. And it continues. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, there is a particular commandment of God that says, Worship God, who's the creator of heaven and earth, and it tells us how to worship him. Keep the seventh day Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So this group of people will be preaching the everlasting gospel, this timeless gospel message, at a particular time in earth's history, and that time is the hour of God's judgment. And they say, if you want to get back to God, fear God, give glory to Him for the hour of judgment to come, and worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Again, the evidence of genuine conversion is obedience to God's commandment. We've seen it over and over. Old Testament and New Testament. Deuteronomy 11.1 1, Who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus in John chapter 14 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. In fact, 1 John says that this is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. And he's saying, if you love this Jesus... This is the time to show your colors. Demonstrate it through obedience to his commandments. And of course, what was the angel, what was the dragon so upset with? There was that people who kept 
the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are his end-time messengers, and his end-time message is the gospel, the everlasting gospel, that the hour of his judgment has come, and true worship to the creator God versus the false worship of the beast and his image. Very clear. Message number one, the first angel's message. Now we move on to Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. The second angel's message. God's last day warning is in three parts. The first, the second, and the third. But let's go to number two now. Verse eight. I'm sorry, verse six. No, no, I was right. Verse eight. (laughs) Wrong page. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is what? Fallen is fallen. That great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. At this point, the judgment has begun in 1844. Babylon got got this beast from the sea, the Antichrist power, received the deadly wound in 1798, and they're sitting here in the light of that saying, hey, Babylon is fallen, so what should you do? Come out. Very clearly, we're going to see this now. Watch Where does he get this language? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Let's go to verse chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 1. We'll see that the same language is employed as another reference to the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who who had said the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, fascinatingly enough, God's true faithful church is a woman clothed in purity, the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? Faithful. And this this church is with child, but it's the child of the very Son of God, right? Jesus Christ. This woman, however again, is a representation of a church, but it's playing the harlot. It is not faithful. It is unfaithful. And also, it has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. Apparently, it gets its power not from heaven, but from the kings of the earth. It's a very clear representation of a spiritual power working with the earthly powers of civil government, right, coming together. And the inhabitants of the earth were made with, drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, of course, you remember the pure woman was with child. This one also apparently has had children, but we'll continue on. So he carried me, verse 3, away into the wilderness, spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Again, another reference to that little horn power, the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Is this a pretty picture? No, this is a very harlotesque picture. The one woman is pure, no adornment of any kind, no drinking, none of this kind of stuff. And to to show what a bad one looks like, he uses this kind of imagery. And now notice what it says in verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, you remember the second angel's message, Babylon has what? Fallen. 
So this people at this time are preaching against this Babylon, saying at this point in earth's history, they're fallen. You've got a moment of escape. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Does this woman also have children? Yes. But they have become harlots as well. And of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So here we see this Babylon again. Babylon is the name of the Antichrist power who makes the world drink, gets drunk with her fornication. With her political influence, we're at our worksheet now, with her political influence wounded for the time being and the announcement of the judgment underway, the true light from God's word is proclaimed boldly to those within the Antichrist system and those within her harlot daughter churches. Now, what's fascinating about this is Revelation chapter 17 continues. I'm sorry, verse, chapter 18. Let's go to chapter 18. And see if this doesn't sound like the second angel's message. Very similar. Chapter 18 and verse 1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Anytime, by the way, you see an angel coming down from heaven, it's a message from God for the earth. Okay, an angel, angelos in Greek, is simply a messenger, someone who carries a message. And, verse 2, he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is what? Fallen is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So that sounds like a pretty awful thing, but until you see verse 4, what's the point of saying that Babylon has fallen? Well, it's to get to verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, whom? My people lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Lest you share in her sins, and you receive of her plagues. God calls those awakened by the truth within Babylon to come out of her, my people. By the way, any time that God calls you out of something, he calls you into something better. If he calls you out of, let's say, a difficult, awful habit that you've had, it's not like, oh man, God's calling me away from this horrible thing, this wonderful thing. No, he's calling away from something terrible to bring you into something better. He calls you out of smoking to bring you into fresh air. See what I'm saying? He calls you out of drinking into sobriety. He calls you out of adultery into faithfulness. Anytime he calls you out, it's a call in to somewhere better, right? God doesn't just say, come out, and then just be alone. No, he says, by the way, Obviously, the people in this, in this system, this Antichrist system, are not lost. They're particularly found. And God is calling them out. And by implication, them calling them in to his remnant church. Here you have the last day messengers calling people out of fallen Babylon into God's faithful remnant that the, Satan is enraged with. Goes on. Revelation, let's go back to our, I'm sorry, our... Again, our, our worksheet here. 
God calls those awakened by the truth within Babylon to come out of her, my people. And I want to make this patently clear. Not all of God's people are in his remnant church. Yet. Apparently, according to Bible prophecy, his people are still in Babylon. But he has a people who are calling them out. But make it patently clear, they are his people. Before they come out, they're still his people. He's saying, but I know that if you had the opportunity to be exposed to this truth, you would see that Babylon has fallen and you will come out. Hmm. Let me just make this application right now. You know, I reference these habits and these difficulties and these hang-ups in life, but if you are in a situation some sort of bad habit, some sort of addiction thing, some sort of relationship, some sort of crux that you know the enemy has got a stranglehold on you, don't think for a moment that because of that, you're not God's people. He says, because of that, I want to free you from that and come out into something better. Whatever you're struggling with, let me tell you something. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. There is power in Jesus. Don't think it's just a lucky charm and a hope and a dream. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, no, no. That's fallen. Come out. So whatever you're struggling with, God still wants you out of there and into his remnant church. I want to make that patently clear. Patently clear. So let's go to the third angel's message. Revelation chapter 14, the most pointed of all the messages. God's end time final warning comes in three parts. First, the everlasting gospel in the context of the heavenly judgment that has begun and worship God who created the heavens and the earth. Second, Babylon has fallen. Come out of her, my people. And that's not just a call out, but it's a call in to his people, right? Now we go to Revelation chapter 14, the most pointed of all the messages, the three angels' message, the third angel's message, verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, notice again, the defining line is faithfulness through worship, either to the God of heaven who created the heavens and the earth or the Antichrist power who set up a false worship system. Okay? If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Very credibly clear. Don't take the mark. You can wrap the third angel's message into one. Don't take the mark. God's last warning is there is a true gospel, there is a false gospel, there's the originator and there's the imitator, there's the true and the counterfeit. The seal of God and the mark of the beast. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ or faithfulness to the Antichrist. And he says, at the very last analysis, it will come down to one thing. Don't take the mark. There will be pressure, there will be deceptions, there will be popularity, it will be financial it might even be a death sentence but whatever you face don't take the mark the seal of god versus the mark of the beast and these people cry with a loud voice in the final analysis don't take the mark 
In verse 12, what does this time call for? Here is the patience of the saints. And again, here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. These last day, end time, final warning messengers of God are the same ones that Satan was enraged with in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And after the three angels' message are given, it identifies them once again. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Apparently, God is going to have a people small as they may be, who will keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus and have the audacity to preach to the whole world the everlasting gospel, the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Proclaim with a loud voice that Babylon has fallen and you can come out. And the very last message of all, don't take the mark. Three angels' messages from one particular faithful group of people. God's calling them out of Babylon, and he says, I want to find faith on the earth. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. By the way, when this gospel, Jesus said it, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness, and then the end will come. Jesus said, the last thing you're going to see is this message, this gospel be preached in all the world, and the next thing you see is the end come. This is the final message. And notice that's exactly what Revelation 14 shows us. Exactly what Revelation 14 shows us. Again, it describes this remnant people. Verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And it goes on to say, then I heard in a voice... I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So some are going to die in the giving of this message, but there's going to be a remnant faithful few. And the very next thing you see, just like Jesus foretold, is the coming of Jesus. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is what? Right. Notice, what's the right time for Jesus to come? When the harvest of the earth is ripe. You notice that Jesus never gives a day for his coming. He says, in fact, explicitly, no man knows the day or the hour. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't know it. He knows what day it's going to be, but he hasn't told us. What's he looking for is not a particular time on the calendar, but he's looking for ripeness of character. Have you chosen who you will serve? Has this gospel been preached to the world? Has there been a distinction between, as we're going to go back in Matthew chapter 13, the wheat and the tares? Is the harvest ripe? So, verse 16 He who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle of the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Notice that there's two simultaneous harvests. We're going to come back to this in Matthew 13 in just a few moments. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, 
for the grapes are fully ripe. Notice the reason that he gathers the grain and the reason that he gathers the grape is because both are fully ripe. By the way, that's how you work these days, right? You don't set a date on the calendar and say, well, I'm going to harvest on that date, right? No, no, no. You watch the crop develop. You say, okay, it's getting closer, it's getting closer, and when, there's, when the moment is right, that's when you thrust in your sickle and reap. The harvest of the earth is ripe. So, verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That is a very graphic image of the destruction of the wicked. But it's nothing unlike what Jesus talked about as we go back to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Basically, the book of Revelation is simply a much, much more detailed explanation of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. The scripture reads, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And you recall we hit this on night number two, 18 meetings ago. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And of course, this is the question we've been battling all along. If God is a good God and he plants a good world, why is there bad stuff? Is God really the God of love that he claims to be? That's the whole theme of this whole series. And I love Jesus' response to that. Sorry, I don't want to interpret it yet. The owner of the field's response. A few verses later, he's going to say it's himself, but we'll get to that. He said to them, an enemy has done this. He makes it very clear that there are two sides. There's the owner of the field, the sower of the good seed, and then there's that enemy who has done this. There are only two sides. And I love that the Lord doesn't take partial credit. It's like, yeah, I know, I should have built a... I'm sorry, my bad. He doesn't do that. He says, I didn't do it. An enemy has done this. There's two sides. There's good and there's bad. There's no gray in between. An enemy has done this. Then the servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Which from the servant's perspective is a logical question. If there's bad seed, let's go whip them up. Let's go take them away. But what's his answer? He said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. What is Jesus' concern? What's the the burden on his heart? Care for the wheat. He said, If we go in early and mess this thing up, we're going to risk losing some wheat that we could have saved in the end. Why does Peter say that Jesus is taking so long? He says he's not slack as some consider slackness. It's not like he's forgetful or he's lazy or he doesn't care. It's specifically because he does care. He's long-suffering towards us. And the reason given, he does not willing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
He's calling people out of confusion and into clarity, out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, out of the fallen Babylon into God's remnant, commandment-keeping people. Continues. Verse 30, Let them both grow together until the harvest, and notice the Revelation 14 language, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First, gather the, gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, and, but gather the wheat into my barn. There's two harvests. The harvest of the righteous and the harvest of the wicked, those who are going to go to the barn and those who go to the burn. And making this patently clear, verse 37, he explains to his disciples what all that symbolic language means. He said, and he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. And son of man was his continual reference to himself. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom, sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is whom? The devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice what? They don't keep God's law. Commandment breakers, right? Those who are not in harmony with the principles, the government of heaven. All those who practice lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Friends, this is what Jesus has been saying all along. He from the beginning of creation all the way to the end of the age, he's going to have a faithful people who are going to demonstrate in their lives that they are responsible citizens of heaven. That regardless of what are temptations or deceptions or entrapments or persecutions or threats on their very life or livelihood, they will not be shaken from standing on the word of God. It is written, I'm going to keep the commandments of God regardless, even if it means my end. I'm going to love the Lord and keep his commandments because he loved me and sent his only son. In response to that everlasting gospel, I'm going to be faithful in return. That's what Jesus is looking for. By the way, friends, let's take a look at this. If you're wondering, what church should I join? What, who possibly constitutes this group of people? It's a very simple checklist. God's remnant people, his true church on earth, will be preaching the everlasting gospel in the context of the pre-advent or before he returns judgment, which began in 1844. How many churches can you think of that present this particular view of history as the Bible simply unfolds it with a judgment of God before he returns to this world beginning in 1844? The list whittles down automatically to one. Also, by the way, they'll be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath as a demonstration of their loyalty to God. They're going to worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water, as opposed to those who worship the Antichrist and his counterfeit day of worship. They'll also be calling out Babylon's errors, saying that Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and believe the Bible truth about what happens when you die, what is hell, 
the heavenly sanctuary, and on and on and on. Bible truth after Bible truth, clear light from God's word will be streaming forth and they're going to say, there's the darkness and confusion of Babylon, here's the truth of God's word, where do you stand? And friends, you put it all together. And God's end time people are constituted in only one body of believers in the world today. I don't say it out of arrogance, I don't say it out of loyalty, and I don't get paid well enough to bend my conscience. I believe it's the Seventh-day Adventist church keeps the commandments of God as the testimony of Jesus. You might be saying, well, what is that testimony of Jesus all about anyway? I'm not sure what that is yet. So we have some more meetings coming up. You want to come back tomorrow night and talk about this, but I'm going to make a challenge to you. This whole meeting, you know, we've been asking every night, by the way, has tonight made sense? See, we've been talking about that. Good, I hope it makes sense. But I want more than just an intellectual like, yeah, that's cool, I agreed, thanks, give me a high five. We don't want that. I hope it was appealing. I hope it made sense. I hope it was clear. I hope it was logical. But beyond that, I don't want just information. I want the Lord to do transformation in your life. And I'm not going to make a weepy-eyed appeal, but at some point, and I'm going to tell you, it's coming at the end of this. this is, we're coming into our last week. This whole ship is coming in for a landing. Ships don't land. A big plane is coming in for a landing, right? The ship is coming into harbor. Use whatever metaphor you want, but we're going to the end of the tunnel, right? We're coming out. And at the end of that, I want you to consider the messages that you've heard. I want you to think about the Sabbath truth, the state of the dead, the heavenly sanctuary, the second coming of Jesus, the validity of Scripture, the testimony of prophecy, all of these powerful truths, this idea of God's judgment going on right now, the, the end-time remnant people, if you want to be a part of that group, God is calling you out, and he's calling you in to his remnant church. I'm going to be bold about it. I'm going to tell you right now, that's going to be the appeal when this plane lands. It's not going to be tonight, but I want you to start thinking about it now. Do you understand what I'm asking? I want you to be thinking about it. Lord, where do I stand? Am I in confusion? Am I in Babylon? Do I know your word? Is it time to come out and have the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? Now, right now, you can't say, yes, I'm ready to go, because you don't know what the testimony of Jesus is. But we're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep showing you truth from God's Word. And I want to see you back here tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Are we clear? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you for your Word. I want to thank you for the great truths. I want to thank you that this world is not much longer to be, and this world is not our home, and our citizenship is in heaven, and our true King is coming soon to redeem us. And Lord, with that in mind, we want to be your messengers to give this final warning. Lord, it's a solemn time, but it's an exciting time. And your word very clearly says that there are people, your people, who are in confusion, in darkness, and in Babylon tonight. Lord, give us the boldness, the clarity, and at the same time, the humility to clearly say, Lord, use me to reach them. Lord, this is the burden of my heart tonight and I hope it's the burden of these people here that they want to stand for the right though the heavens fall. And they're not content with just an intellectual understanding of God's word. They want entire transformation, a restoration into the image of God we originally created to reflect. Lord, teach us how to be those people. Teach us your truth. Help us to stand for the right. And Lord, help us to lead other people out of darkness and into your marvelous light. For we pray it in Jesus' name. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.